Go ahead and grab a seat. This is a long text to read. You did a great job. So we have been every week this semester and even last semester going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, I even just felt led to even just start off by saying um, this church that we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians, it's just Paul wrote a letter to them and really addressing a lot of the problems that they had. And I, I just had a sense, just to say at the beginning, the reason that Paul wrote a letter to them was the fact that he believed that the gospel was hope enough to restore everything that was broken in their life. Like, he did not believe that they were too far gone. And we've read about a lot of the things that have been going on in this church, a lot of problems and issues that they've had, individual issues like division, favoritism, they had problems with their sex lives. They were consumed with idol worship. And now he's even gonna begin to address this fact or the problem of the Lord's Supper. But I just wanted to start off by saying the fact that he even wrote this letter, the fact that he even wrote a letter to this group of Corinthians wasn't to shame them, wasn't to, to guilt trip them. It was to be a source of hope in their life to point them back to Jesus. And I think sometimes we can just come in on Thursday nights and feeling like, oh man, I'm really bummed because I'm gonna feel really guilty when I leave. But I wanted to let you know, like the reason we're excited for you to be here is because we believe that there is hope, so much hope in the name of Jesus to restore all things that are broken in your life. And, and that's what we're gonna look at tonight is this idea and practice that they had an issue with, that they had some problems with known as the Lord's Supper. So let's go ahead and let's just jump into the text and see what God is gonna bring to light today. So we're in verses 17 through 34 if you're there. You guys ready? Let's get to it. Verse 17 says this. Now in giving instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now that's a pretty intense statement right there. Like that is not something you necessarily want to hear from like Paul, the guy who wrote two thirds of the New Testament and planted this church. Like, hey, when you gather, it's actually for the worst. Like when you come together as a group, not only is it not like beneficial, not only is it not building each other up, but it's actually worse that you're coming together. It's worse that you guys are a group. The church, when it comes together, when it's gathered, remember two weeks ago we said, man, our purpose is for the good of others and the glory of God. So when we gather, it is supposed to be for good. But apparently for this group, apparently for this church of 1 Corinthians, when they gathered together, it was not for good. It was for the worse. And, and why, I'm, I'm wondering, Paul, why are you so distraught that they're coming together? Why is it for the worst that you are gathered? Look at verse 18. For to begin with. You know it's bad when someone like starts off like their message with like, hey, for to begin with, like when they have a list of reasons, you're like, what did I even do wrong? And they're like, well, first of all, right? It's like when they're coming with a whole list, you're like, oh, shoot. Like, all right, here we go. And this is how Paul begins. To begin with. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Verse 19 says, 
Indeed, it is necessary that there are factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And then verse 20 says this, and this is kind of the the big passage for tonight. When you come together, when you guys gather, when you join as a group, it, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So when the church would gather as a community, as an early church, they would regularly partake in a meal known as the Lord's Supper, which has a very unique and special origin and purpose for the life of the church. And basically what Paul is saying here is like, what you're doing when you gather, it's not that. Like, I know what the Lord's Supper, I know what the Lord's Supper is, and this is not it. Like you, this has nothing comparison to the Lord's Supper. Have you ever been in a situation uh, like where you have no idea what the other person's talking about? Like, have you ever been like overseas or said someone's speaking a completely different language? Maybe like, has anyone ever been overseas before? And they're speaking a different language and like, like they're trying to communicate to you and you have no idea what they're saying. You're just like nodding your head. You're like, yeah, for sure. Or like, have you ever been to like South Alabama? And they're like, well, I reckon the sweet tea up in the back here. And you're like, yeah, this is English. I, I was born in Alabama, so I can say that. Um, but you kind of just, or maybe like even you're a girl and a guy's like talking about football and you're trying to like, trying to remain interested. You're like, yeah, sure, Tom Brady, quarterback, touchdown points. <laughs> or, or if you're a guy and a girl starts talking about her feelings and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I know what feelings are. I'm vibing with you there, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of times we can do that when it comes to like church too and salt company. Like we come on a Thursday night and we hear things talk, we come on a Sunday morning in the church gathering and we hear these terms and we hear these things that people say and we just nod our head and we're like, yeah, I, I totally know what you're talking about. Instead of actually asking like, I have no idea what this means. And so the big idea tonight, it focuses around the Lord's Supper. And if you've come to church before and you've heard that term, maybe you've heard communion, Lord's Supper, maybe you're from a Catholic background like Eucharist or Early ancient Christians would call them love feasts, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> we get a lot of people, creepy people showing up. If you're like, we're having a love feast at church. <laughs> like, I'm in. Like, no, you're not invited anymore to my love feast. Uh, but if you've been around the church, maybe you've heard something like that. And if you haven't been in the church, maybe you have no idea. And you're just kind of nodding your head. And what is the Lord's Supper? And tonight we're going to unpack what the Lord's Supper is. So the, tor- the term Lord's Supper, uh, it, it, it basically is what it means, right? Uh, the Supper of the Lord, and the Lord is Jesus, and specifically taken from Jesus's last days on earth, where he and his closest buds, like his closest friends, known as the disciples, came together for, well, supper, right? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, uh, kind of in the the beginning of the New Testament, they all uh, have recallings of the Lord's Supper. And even uh, Paul's writing in this passage, he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he's drawing from those instances. So let's jump down to verse 23, because Paul's actually going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And are you there? In verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord, so he's like, I received this from Christ. This isn't something I made up. I received this from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. And this is where it begins. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, 
broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so this meal, the Lord's Supper, where did we get this from? Well, Paul tells us in verse 23 that we received it from the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who established this practice for his followers, for his disciples. He was setting up a meal. And he said, every time you eat of this, remember of me. A little context about the meal that is happening that we read about with Jesus. It, um, as you notice there in verse 26, on the night that he was betrayed, this shows us and tells us a little bit of context that this was towards the end of Jesus's life. And if you read in the gospels, if you read in Matthew or Mark or Luke, you'll see that this was in the week of the Passover and the Passover meal. Uh, the Passover was just like a holiday, kind of like Christmas, you know, um, for Jews. It was a holiday commemorating when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so to commemorate that, to celebrate that, kind of like we celebrate the, the birth of Christ, like they're like, hey, to celebrate, to remember what God has done, we are going to remember the Passover. And we're gonna have a meal that, that celebrates this. So Jesus and his disciples, in context, they were at this Passover meal. Jesus was a Jew, the disciples were a Jews. If you didn't know that, you learned something today. And they're having this Passover meal. They've probably done this hundreds of times. Maybe not hundreds, because they only do it once a year. You'd have to be 100 years old. So not hundreds of times. They've probably done it their whole life. And Jesus takes a moment during this meal to introduce and establish a new meal, a new holiday. This is honestly, Michael, Michael was even praying this just like only like Michael can with just this beautiful language as he's praying. And it just made me think of this moment right here. Like that this is a beautiful collision. Like this is a collision of the story of the Bible. We get where God previously made a covenant with Israel. You read like this part of your Bible. And it's all about God making a promise to be the God of a people and to redeem them and restore them and to rescue them. And we read this whole story and we see that, that God has made a promise. And then in one moment, we see the promise that God previously has made. And he now makes a new promise to fulfill it through the person of Christ. In a moment, just a, just a moment over a meal, we see the covenant promise being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus had been taking Passover his whole life, knowing that this moment was coming and eating this meal. He knew that this was the last meal he was going to eat before he would die. I, I, I wonder if you could just like feel, like if you could be in that room, if you could just feel the weight of it, right? Like this, this big ritual of like remembering that God saved us from slavery and like hope that one day he would do it again. And Jesus like, he knows. He knows the hope of Israel and the hope of the world 
is coming and is now here. I wonder if you could just feel the weight of the room. This meal is all about hope and Jesus gives it a new meaning and a new purpose because everyone thought the Messiah, the hope of the world, the one that was going to come and make everything right, especially Israel, they thought that he was gonna come riding on like this great stallion horse with like long flowy hair, like defeating the Romans and long flowy hair with explosions in the background. And here we are instead in a random room, nobody knows, and this guy named Jesus from Galilee, who was born in a manger, is eating with his friends. And his friends have no idea what's about to happen. What Jesus displays at this meal is that the long-awaited hope of a Savior, that all of history points to this. It's pointing to Jesus, the chosen one, the Messiah. In this sacred moment known as the Lord's Supper, Jesus shows us that he is not planning to overthrow or outpower the physical power of Rome, but what he's about to do is about to lay down his life and in doing so would overcome death for every person. He would overthrow the power of hell through his death. He takes a moment in complete calmness, complete clarity, speaking to his friends, probably with a smile on his face, because that's, that's who Jesus is, right? And he looks at him and he says, guys, this, is, this bread that you're about to eat, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. This wine that you're about to drink, this represents my blood. It's gonna be poured out for you. What Jesus is telling them, his best friends, I'm about to die. And he gives them instructions. After my death, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you do this, every time you get together, every time you take this meal of bread and wine, do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread, take the wine, and remember that I died for your sins. Remember that I conquered death and the grave. Remember what's about to happen. And that day did come to pass. A couple days later, Jesus was arrested. He was beaten to a pulp. He was nailed to a cross, all for our sin. And three days later, though, he didn't stay in the grave, but God raised him from the dead. And Jesus walked out of the grave and appeared first to a woman who then told the disciples that Jesus was alive. And then he appeared to his disciples. And before ascending and going back to the Father, he gave them a mission to do. And so, as the church was created right after Jesus ascended, this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples that just happened a couple days earlier became one of the primary practices for every church and every early follower of Jesus. This meal of remembering Jesus became primary to worship. And Christians, until today, would regularly gather and take the cup of wine and take the bread and remember what Jesus has done. It was so prevalent in their time 
uh, of like early Christian churches, right? So at the beginning of Christianity, when it was illegal, it was so prevalent that like word spread even to like Rome. And remember, like they're being persecuted. And so they're trying to kind of like keep this under wraps. And yet it was so prevalent that even the popo find about it, like even Rome, right? Even the cops who were coming after them were like, yeah, we heard these Christians are doing this weird thing called love feasts. And they're doing it with their brothers and sisters. It's like really creepy. You wonder like why people think Christians are so weird sometimes. And they're eating flesh. They're drinking blood. These weird cannibals and incest people. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of Alabama. Um, I'm kidding. I'm from Alabama. It's fine. This... (laughs) This practice, how do I recover from that? Uh, I love Alabama. Um, This practice remained prevalent, remained a part of the culture in church, even to today. Isn't that kind of cool though? Like something that started 2,000 years, like we're still doing that in churches all across the world. The thing that Jesus tells us to remember, it's like, well, we're doing it. And the purpose, symbolic Remembrance and, and in current day, there's many different traditions that are doing this. So if you're from a Catholic background, it probably looks a little bit different. You think of the cup and the bread a little differently. And if you're Lutheran or evangelical, or if you're in the Reformed tradition, all of them have these different perspectives of it. But we have to remember what the text is pointing us to. This was done in remembrance. It's supposed to point us to remembrance. There's nothing, there's nothing magical about the bread and the wine. It is, it is remembering what Jesus had done. Okay, so two things, just two things I just wanna take away from what we see about the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And now I just wanna like two things that I wanna take away from the Lord's Supper. And once we see those things, we're going to see why Paul was so ticked off at the Corinthian church for how they were practicing it. So the first thing that I want you to think of is the context. Think of the context of communion, the context of the Lord's Supper. We have to remember that the Lord's Supper was originally done at a table around community. It was a meal of remembrance, celebration, thanksgiving, and commitment to to love God and love others, specifically through new life in Jesus. And it was done among a gathered group this gathered group of Jesus followers known as the disciple, it was done in a group. Jesus didn't walk to like each individual disciple and be like, hey, what's up? Like, remember me, here's some bread and wine. It's like, no, sorry. It's like, no, this is a collective thing. All over the place. Uh, This is a collective community thing. We have to remember the context of it. That's why we don't really take communion at Salt Company. That's why we don't normally take it in connection groups. Because we believe that the Lord's Supper, the communion, is done in the context of the local church, unified and gathered followers of Jesus. So why do we do it all together? Like, why do we, we reserve it for the unified, gathered body, specifically on a Sunday morning? Why do we do it together? Because you are not the bride of Christ. You individually, as a person, You are not the bride of Christ. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. 
the unified body of gathered believers. That is the bride of Christ. That is the body of Christ. This is another reminder that like we have to fight against this American privatization of Christianity. Like we, we so want to just like be me and Jesus in my room and that's what I do and like I'm good for life and like that's just me and him and we got this, we got the world. And that's not like nowhere, nowhere ever do we see that, that what, that's what Christian community is. We never see Christianity apart from the local church. It doesn't exist. This isn't just a you and Jesus thing. You've been adopted into a family. When you've been adopted into the family of God, you've been adopted with some other brothers and sisters that maybe you didn't want, but you've got, and you don't get to choose them. Congrats. But you're meant to walk with them, and they need you, and you need them. And we are a body, and we're gonna get into that in the next chapter, in chapter 12, talking about the body of Christ, and it's gonna be great. The reason we do it together also just displays unity. Nowhere ever would you be able to look across the room and someone completely different than you, that looks different than you, that socioeconomically you have no relationship with, right? Like, like I'm from Alabama. You have, like, we don't have much in common. I'm weird. And yet we can gather in the context of the local church and be like, yeah, brothers and sisters in Christ. Someone of a different ethnicity than you that speaks a different language than you. And gathering together and taking the Lord's Supper, it brings unity and that preaches to the world that though we are different, we can be unified. That's the first thing. Understand its context, that it's done in community. Second, that it's done in remembrance. Just like Jesus instructed, do this in remembrance of me. However, this is, this isn't like a memorial service that Jesus is talking about, right? Like, do this in remembrance of me. A lot of times when we go to memorial services, we're like, in remembrance of. And, and this isn't really what that is. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, right? That's the whole reason we're doing this thing right now. It's because Jesus didn't stay dead. And so when you do this in remembrance of, it's not just like a, oh, cool, like I remember this Jesus dude, he lived and died like other old people in history books. Like, no, that's not what Jesus meant when he said, do this in remembrance of me. We're supposed to remember in a way that transforms you, even in the Bible when it says, remember this, like all through the Bible when it talks about remember, it's like, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's not just be like, oh, remember that Sabbath exists. It's like, no, remember, understand in a way that actually changes the way that you live. Remember in a way that transforms you. So when you take the Lord's Supper, you remember that Jesus died on the cross. You remember the tomb. And you remember that it's empty. And this remembrance changes you. Guys, this practice of, of taking the Lord's Supper on a regular basis transformed my life in college. Every week, I took the bread and I took the wine. Imagine like having some real like issues in your life. Imagine being addicted to pornography and like walking up to the communion table, knowing that I'm about to come face to face with the holy creator, the one who laid out his life so that I could have life. 
knowing that I was about to have to confess my sin before I accepted the gospel again. Imagine being in a season of depression, like at the lowest of low, and you don't even feel that God exists right now. And knowing at the end of service, you're gonna take communion. And you take the bread and you take the wine and you receive the gospel. You do this in remembrance. I love how Michael Green's uh, theology of the Lord's Supper, and he says this, when you look back, when you look back at the cross, it forces you to look in in self-examination. When you look in in self-examination, it forces you to look up at your fellowship with God. And when you, when you look at your fellowship with God, it makes you look around you. And when you look around you and you see other people, it makes you look forward to the coming of Christ. And when you look forward to the coming of Christ, it makes you look outward to those who don't know Christ. It's this beautiful idea of when you look back, you don't just look back, but you look in, you look around, and it's a, it's a remembrance that changes the way that you live. So two things about the Lord's Supper that I want you to, to understand. It's done in community of the local church, and it's done in a remembrance that transforms you. It's done in remembrance of what Christ has done. Okay, so if that's what the Lord's Supper is, then what exactly is the problem that Paul is dealing with at the church at Corinth? So now we're gonna go back to our text and figure out, okay, Paul, why are you so mad at the church at Corinth of what they're doing? Why would you say that it's better that they don't even gather? Let's go ahead and take a look at verse 21. It says this. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or, you or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Paul even says a chapter earlier that when we eat of this bread, we become one. That no matter your background, right, we said this, no matter your ethnicity, when you take the bread, we become one in Christ. We become brothers and sisters of the same family. And the problem that was happening in Corinth was everything that they were doing at this meal, so at the practice of the Lord's Supper, everything they're doing was not testifying to the fact that they were unified. Everything that they were doing undercut the very meaning of the supper. So their actions did not line up with what the supper meant. It would, it would be kind of like if, like, uh, like if, if, we, if I invited you over to dinner at my house and like it was celebrating the fact that like I've been vegan for three years and I'm going on seven, right? Like, hey, I'm like halfway, it's been three and a half years. Let's just celebrate I'm vegan. Like come over to my house, we're gonna have a party because I'm, I'm vegan now. And, and then you come and like you knock on the door, I'm like, come in. And then my dog jumps on you, Kato. I'm like, hey, get off of him, uh, come on in. And then I'm like, they're like, oh, cool. So what are we having for dinner? I'm like, we're having steak. Having a big old fat steak. You're like, I thought this was to celebrate the fact that you're vegan and gonna stay vegan. I'm like, yeah, it is. This steak great. It's confusing, right? Because what's happening at the meal 
undercuts the very purpose of the meal. You see what I'm saying? The fact that I'm eating steak undercuts the fact that the meal was supposed to celebrate the fact that I'm vegan. It's apparent, it's just, it's so irony, like irony, that's not a word. Oh, it is a word, but not using that term. <laughs> it's so ironic. The fact that this is happening, what are they doing? They're supposed to be at a meal that displays unity. And what's happening? Their friends and brothers are going hungry. There is division among them. Like rich and poor and they're dividing. They're dividing at a place that was supposed to bring unity. It doesn't make sense. It's ironic. It wasn't representing unity and commitment toward each other because they were not remembering properly what Christ had done. What I'm practicing at the meal does not represent the purpose of the meal. They were forgetting the message of Jesus. Just like, like I wonder if Jesus, like, it's like, guys, you had one job. Remember. I said, do this in remembrance of me. But they were doing the opposite. They forgot. They forgot the purpose of the meal. If we are to, as a community, rightfully, for you as a Christian, if you're to rightfully practice the Lord's Supper, to rightfully practice what Jesus called us, begged us to remember, we cannot do so. We cannot take the Lord's Supper. We cannot take the bread and the wine while forgetting our brothers and sisters. We can't take the bread and the wine and remember what Jesus has done and then forget about those around us. The Lord's, the Lord's Supper calls us. It forces us to live out what we believe. So, okay, what's, what's the big deal? What's the big deal of following the Lord's Supper so properly? Like, Paul, why are you getting so mad? Like, yes, I get it's supposed to display unity, but it's okay, they're just slipping up. Well, Paul gives us a warning of sorts to those who don't follow the Lord's Supper. Look in verse 23. It says, so then, whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. If you are not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, if you're not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, you are sinning against Christ. You are sinning against God. You're sinning against who? It says right there, the body and the blood of the Lord. When we take it with division and pride, when there's no unity in our community, when there's conflict, when we have just forsaken unity for the sake of personal preference, it's not that we're just, you know, not doing well to our brothers and sisters. It's not that we're just sinning against our brothers and sisters. We're sinning against God. We're sinning against the Lord. When you sin against your brother, 
In this case, they were going hungry while they were just feasting and getting drunk. And the guy who had little is just going hungry at this meal. What Paul is telling him is that you haven't just sinned against him, you've sinned against, you've sinned against Jesus, the body, which is why Paul says this in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We must, before coming to the Lord's table, before taking the Lord's Supper, before actually practicing this thing that Jesus told us to do, we must examine ourselves. If there is sin that you've committed against another person in the room, you need to resolve it before proclaiming that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Like before you take the, the cup and the wine that says, Jesus is my Lord and we are unified together and there is actual conflict and sin in the room that is unresolved. Paul's saying you need to examine yourself. You need to do the hard work of letting the Holy Spirit convict you and speak to you before you do this. And we do this, why? Because if we fail to examine ourselves, if we fail to examine ourselves before the Lord's Supper, it will lead to terrible consequences. If we fail to examine ourselves, it'll lead to terrible consequences. Look at verse 30 and then we're almost done. This is why, Paul says, the fact that you're not examining yourselves the fact that you're, you're unworthy in taking the Lord's Supper says this in verse 30. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep, which means they died. They didn't just take a nap. If we were properly judging ourselves, he says in thir verse 31, if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. If we fail to examine ourselves, it can lead to terrible consequences. And what are these terrible consequences? It's not actually being sick. It's not actually being ill and it's not death. Those things that we read, those are not the terrible consequences. Paul writes that it is possible that those things that are happening Verse 32, look at, are what? They are as what? Discipline from the Lord. Things, these things, the illness, the death, the sickness, it, Paul is saying it may be possible that God is making you more like Christ through disciplining you by taking away your health. Now, hold on. I do not think that this means all disease, all death, all sickness is from God for the sake of disciplining you or teaching you a lesson. That does not sound like a good father to me. It sounds like a cruel one. God is a good father who disciplines his children. Discipline is not a negative thing. Don't think of it as a negative thing. Discipline is a positive thing. He is teaching and instructing us Like a good father, he's disciplining us to save us from the real pain, the real pain of what sin causes. He wants to save you 
from the real pain of sin. Guys, the most terrible thing can happen is not that the fact that God would discipline you for your sin. Like you being convicted of your sin, you being reprimanded for your sin, rebuked of your sin. That is not the, the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen would be to just let you go off on your sin. To let you take your, take your sin and what you're struggling with, things that you're falling to, and to take that to its nth degree. That would be the worst thing. That would be the most terrible thing that could happen. And so like a good father, what he's doing is he's intervening and disciplining you and showing ways that you have fallen short. Why? Not to shame you, not to guilt you, but to teach you. But to teach you, to bring you back to him, to make you more like his son, Jesus. Just going off on your sin will be much worse than if God would intervene and discipline you. Sin will cause you much more pain than the physical discipline that the Father is causing. So if you have sin in your life, which we all do, we must examine it, we must confess it, and we must embrace the good news that Jesus died so that shame and guilt would be put to death and it would be taken off of us. Because I know I can't bear it. I can't bear the shame and the guilt that sin causes. I don't know what to do with it. So Jesus is saying, you don't have to. I will take it from you. Confess it to me. Give it up to me. Give your life to me. Okay, so what do we do with this text? I'm even challenged. Like after reading this text, I'm like, okay, how's this gonna change my life? How am I gonna live this out differently? What should we remember to do in the context and the purpose of the Lord's Supper? We'll look at verse 33 and then I'm gonna close and then we're gonna be done. Verse 33 says this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Here's what I would say to do. Here's what I'm challenged by this text. Continue to grow in community of the local church. When you come together to eat, welcome one another. Why? Because there will be failure. There will be disappointment. You will be let down in the local church. In your community, in your connection group, you are going to be let down. There will be missed expectations. But Paul says, devote yourself to it. Give yourself to it. Persevere. Push into community. He doesn't even tell them to stop gathering. He, he even gives them hope like, hey, when you come together, because you're going to come together again and you're going to work this stuff out, welcome one another. I just want to tell you, continue to persevere in your community. Continue to persevere in the local church and welcome one another. Be hospitable. Be welcoming in your community. Invite people in. Love one another well. Why? Because Christ loved you so well. Love others well in your community because Christ loved you well. Love those who don't look like you, talk like you, don't have as much money as you. And look out for the needs of others. Support others. Why? Because Christ didn't look at the needs of himself, but he looked at the needs of the world gave up his right, gave up his life on the cross so that you could have life. And ultimately, remember the good news. 
Remember the good news that Jesus bled and died for your sins and his death, burial, and resurrection brings death to your sin. And it offers you new life in following him. Remember that. When you take the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Know that he's putting death to death. And he's giving us new life. Remember that he is good and remember that he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we hear um, your word and we examine our hearts. Father, and when we do, we know that we're broken. We know that we're in need of hope. We're sinners in need of you. So, Father, I pray that when we examine ourselves, we don't look to ourselves to get us out of that, but we look to the cross. We look to the blood that was shed for us. And I pray when we look to that, it begins to change us from the inside out, that it changes our hearts, it changes our actions. Father, I pray that we do all of this in remembrance of what you've done. Amen.